0: Hi, my name is Vicky Huang. Hi, my name is Ang Lee. Welcome to
1: our podcast, Laos Slurp, where two working journalists talk about everything from China,
0: Korean dramas, and Asian food to working in journalism. I hope you enjoy our weekly chit Please hit that subscribe button if you want to stay in touch. Hello, my fellow foodies.
1: Welcome to the Laos Slurp podcast. I'm your host, Ang. I hope you're getting some good food into your belly as the weather gets colder.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Lousler Podcast. I am your co-host, Vicky.
1: Today, we have the founder and CEO, Carol Pack of Maku, uh, joining us to talk about her entrepreneurship and how she started this amazing brand that I love so much. So Carol, could you introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Sure. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Carol Pack. I founded a Korean rice beer brand called Maku about three years ago, and it is our modern day interpretation of a very traditional alcohol in Korea called makgeolli.
0: Wow, that sounds great. Uh, We can't wait to talk to you about Maku and your entrepreneurial journey, Carol. Um, But before we get into that fascinating story, uh, let's get into the Chilama segment where we talk about our favorite dishes of the week. So, Carol, what was the favorite dish that you had in the past week? Um,
2: Well, I ate out a couple of times this week. Um, I was very excited that indoor dining opened back up Um, and I also got my results back for COVID and I was negative. So um, the first one that I can remember was at Konbini, which is kind of like a very casual Japanese food style um, type of cuisine that's in K-Town in Manhattan. And we had, my fiance and I had a kimchi nabe and a Um, and they were very, very good. And then the second was, there was a Korean pop-up restaurant that opened up uh, recently. And I think the chef was formerly at The Modern. Um, So it was kind of very fancy luxury food at very, very casual pricing. Um, And they had a couple of like cold ceviche style dishes and they had a scallop one that was amazing. So those are the two off the top of my head.
1: Those dishes sounds really delicious. And I can't wait to check out this restaurant uh, that you mentioned. Uh, Vicky, what about you? Uh, what did you have this past week?
0: I agree. Those dishes definitely sound so delicious, um, Carol. For me, this past week, I I think my favorite dish was this um, these Indian food that I had from uh, an Indian restaurant nearby my house, Um which is called Indian flavors. Um, so I got my favorite must-get um, favorite food from that restaurant, which is garlic naan. And I also had one of their signature dishes, which is called majestic chicken. Uh, I know it's a very grand name, but the food it tastes just as good. Uh, it really deserves a name. And then I also had uh, malay kafta, which is an Indian dish that I discovered recently Uh It's so delicious. It's basically cottage cheese mixed with um, potato and different spices and it becomes this kind of creamy gravy that you can mix with rice or dip your garlic naan with. Um, So it's just a host of different flavors. I really enjoyed it. Um, What about you? What was your favorite dish of the past week?
1: That sounds really good. Uh, I can't wait to visit you again and then so we can try the, you know, this Indian restaurant. Um, I actually made, so if you tuned in to our first episode of the season two of the Lobster podcast, uh, you would know that we had this amazing celebrity chef, uh, you know, as our guest, like Mehdi Park. Uh, and she actually taught us how to make this great dish called butadun. Uh, so this week I actually tried out that recipe. Uh, it's kind of like a stir fried uh, pork bowl. Uh, you you just stir fry the onions first um, and then you put in like, you know, thinly sliced pork uh, and you mix that together at like soy sauce, uh, marin uh, and a little bit of garlic, ginger, uh, it is a really flavorful dish and you can actually meal prep, uh, you know, a large amount and just top it with sesame seeds, scallions, uh, and you can like make an egg, you know, like, uh, and then just poke the runny uh, egg uh, on top of the, the, the dish. Uh, It also goes really well with rice, you know, like it's very a heartwarming dish uh, in this cold chilly weather in New York. Uh, So I've enjoyed that a lot this past
0: week. That sounds so delicious. Um, I also can't wait for you to come visit me so you can make me that dish. Um, I guess we can just get into the main part of the podcast.
1: So Carol, thanks so much again for joining us. For people who don't know about this brand, uh, or makoli Can you share what is makgeoli?
2: Sure. Um, a lot of people don't actually know what makoli is. It's very underrated, and um, I think doesn't really get the recognition that it deserves. So it dates back to as long as Korea was kind of in existence. You know, different records. You know, say different eras, but at least two thousand years ago, it was. You know, kind of discovered naturally people discovered like rice one day bubbling in a pot and um, figured that you can make alcohol with you know this abundant grain that was available in the country and it was a drink that was available for really anyone um, from like the lower class farmers to like the noblemen and the and the kings and the royal families so It's a very, very simple drink. It's just made with rice, um, a fermentation agent called nuruk, which is only made to make Korean alcohol and water. And it's, you know, initially it was the only alcohol available in our country. And then over time, you had other influences come in. And, you know, now we have everything available from whiskey to gin, to wines, to soju. Um, But this is truly, you know, the alcohol of Korea. And um, it's 6% alcohol, like on average. Um, it can range from very tart to not tart at all, very sweet to not sweet at all, very thick to not thick at all. Um, and then also varies in terms of how um, like earthy the flavor is. And that really comes from the nerve. So our version of makoli is really what I felt was the most easily um, consumable and and not as hard to kind of um, get used to the taste because some other makulis are a little bit higher in alcohol level or it's a little bit too earthy and, you know, funky tasting for for people. So um, yeah, I think like a very introductory makuli, if you will, Um, we have launched with three different flavors a mango and a blueberry just in case people, you know, they get a little bit hesitant when they see makgeolli because it's white and they automatically associate that with milk. And then for them, it's like, oh, like an alcoholic milk doesn't seem so pleasing. Um, So then, you know, if we have a mango or a blueberry, then at least we thought that if people are familiar with those drinks, they'll be more likely to try makgeolli.
0: That sounds fascinating. Um, I really love how it's a drink for everyone and it dates back at least 2000 years. That's a really vivid detail about this drink. Um, I think uh, for a lot of people who haven't had uh, Maguli, what do you think is the best way to um, drink Maguli? Because some alcohol drinks are um, better had alone, or and some other drinks are better had when mixed with like um, sort of uh, appetizers and a certain kind of food.
2: Yeah. So, um, because I am reimagining makgeolli from what it currently is and what I perceive it to be in Korea, um, to see kind of how wide it can go in terms of reach and our target audience. I didn't want to define to people how people should be drinking maku, and I'm a little bit more leaning on observing how people are enjoying it, whether with meals or by itself. And I'm also trying to talk to as many people as possible. Um, but in Korea, I will say that makgeolli is typically served with food, but in general, all alcohol in Korea is consumed with food. So there's specific dishes that call for makgeolli. And rather than choosing food to go with alcohol, um, you're choosing like the alcohols to, to go with the food. So if you see like a pajan, which is like a Korean pancake, um, people will most likely be drinking makgeolli with that. Um, also some other popular dishes is kimchi. Um, this dish called like, it's like an acorn jelly uh, also a lot of pork dishes, whether it be like pork belly, like steamed, which is like a posam or pan fried or stir-fried, anything really like spicy as well, because of like the creaminess of makali that balances, you know, the, the spice and the kick of that. Um, just how people drink milk to soothe, you know, <laughs> a mouth that is on fire. Um, yeah, those are the common practices in, in Korea.
1: Thank you so much for sharing, Carol. Uh, I have to admit that I'm an avid drinker of uh, Makoli and also of Maku. Uh, and i actually first discovered maku uh, at a polish uh grocery store uh you know in my neighborhood in greenpoint uh, and i was like you know really uh, intrigued by you know the the package you know kind of like the design of the maku cans um and i i saw it i was first intrigued and i was kind of surprised that it was sold at a polish grocery store uh in greenpoint uh so that's how i decided i was like huh, this is interesting, you know, I'm going to give it a try and the minute I tasted it, it was, I think it was a blueberry or mango flavor, I don't remember which one exactly, Um, But the minute I tried, I was obsessed. And I just started, you know, that was probably earlier this year when I first encountered Maku. Uh, And then I've just been drinking like ever since, you know, it goes well, like I would say literally with everything, you know, I eat a lot of Korean food and Vicky does as well. Uh, And I just drink it like, you know, like after work, you know, like after a long day, like on its on its own. Uh, or drink it with like chon, like pancake, like kimchi chon. So yeah, thank you so much for for this delicious uh, beverage. Like I really do enjoy it so much. Um, So I was wondering if we could kind of rewind and go back to like, you know, the history of Maku, you know, what made you decide to launch Maku, uh, you know, like a couple of years ago?
2: Yeah, so I was working in the beverage industry. I was at ZX Ventures, which is a venture division of AB InBev, which is the world's largest alcohol company. But uh, most people will know it for its, you know, kind of flagship brand, which is Budweiser. Um, And we were kind of trying to figure out why there had been this sharp decline in beer's market share in the US um, over the past decade. And we kind of saw that that would be the prediction for the next five, 10 years. Um, So we knew that we needed to A, figure out what was going on and then B, offer a solution to that problem. So I was in the beyond beer category where we were kind of looking into other categories of alcohol, including hard cider and hard teas and hard sodas and hard kombucha. and also trying to fit like, is, is it better for us to invest in a, a current brand? Is it better for us to launch internally or is it best to like acquire a brand? Um, and eventually like our team was split into internal growth and external growth. And I was an in internal growth, which was more focused on launching products from within. Um, and eventually I was put on a project to launch something in China And while I was there, I took a trip, uh, a family trip to Korea and noticed that there was this Makali boom amongst like the younger generations. And I just found that really fascinating. And then kind of thinking about what was going on in the U.S. with like the rise of K-pop and Korean beauty and Korean food and just all Korean culture and the growing demographic of like Asian Americans um, and just a lot of like, celebrity chefs like david chang really representing and pioneering this like movement of like asian food and beverage and culture i thought that it could be a good time to launch something like makgeolli in the u.s and like that i was in a very good position to do so because there's very very few asian americans in my field and i think that um since the alcohol industry is so regulated it's kind of very frightening and intimidating for someone that's not in the industry already to think about entering. So, you know, I thought like if it was anyone that should be trying to do this, it should be me. And I left my company and um, started out on this journey in 2017.
1: Thank you so much for sharing. That's a great story. I know that your mom is, you know, an integral part of launching Maku. So could you tell us a little bit more about like the family uh, aspect of this brand?
2: So it was never intentional for my mom to be a part of this. Uh, She was not a fan of me, you know, starting out to start my own alcohol company. Um, But I had been trying to brew Makkali for about six months and was really not getting anywhere and because she's such a great chef and I really rely on like her palate, I would always bring my batches to her and ask her what she thought. And at one point she, you know, decided that she would just take it into her own hands. And because Makali is kind of so old and outdated, there's not too many resources available online for people like me, who English is my primary language. So. She had gone to Naver, which is kind of like the popular web engine for Koreans, um, where there were a lot more resources and like scientific information about makgeolli and brewing makgeolli. So she kind of, you know, did her own research and then started brewing, and then started presenting me with with batches. Um, And her batches, for some reason, just tasted much better than mine. ultimately came up with something that would be our first batch of Maku.
0: That's a really heartwarming story. Um, I guess going back to what you mentioned earlier about working at ZX Ventures, uh, the venture arm of um, Anheuser-Busch InBev, um, it's definitely, I think, uh, by conventional standards, it's a very um, good job that a lot of people would be kind of sending their resumes in for. I'm wondering what were the catalysts that led you to make up your mind and leave that job and uh, become an entrepreneur, which is definitely not the easiest thing to do.
2: Um, so it was really two catalysts. Um, the first was that I was working on a project that I didn't really believe in, and it was a little bit discouraging to spend all this time and energy, you know, pushing forward something that I truly, you know, it wasn't my decision making. So yeah, I just really desired that flexibility and freedom um, where I could exercise my thoughts. And then second, I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur and was waiting for the right opportunity where my background and experiences like uniquely was a benefit um, for whatever I was trying to set out to do. And I felt like Mokali and me being in the beverage industry and me being Korean American and kind of in the younger generation where a lot of innovation was happening um it just felt right and I guess the thirdly um as a woman you know I knew I always wanted to have children and a family um and it was a bit riskier to start a venture while I had a family so I figured like oh well if I fail, I can always go out and get a job again, because I have no family to like, support and take care of. So those were kind of like the
1: three catalysts, I guess. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I guess just a quick follow up question to that. Has the past always been like smooth sailing for you? Um, You know, like, since the beginning of you know, you leaving your really prestigious job at this firm, uh, and then starting a new, uh, you know, business?
2: No, I don't think any entrepreneur uh, will have an answer that it was a smooth sale. And if, if they do, God bless them. Um, in the first year, um, first two years, actually, I came across a lot of challenges with production. Um, first of all, like because Makali is so new and we were really starting a new brand, other than like the imports um, that were coming from Korea, the TTB, which is the government arm that regulates alcohol, didn't know how to categorize us. So they put us as a sake, uh, which is a rice wine. But the challenge with that is that with production facilities, to produce a sake, you need licenses for both beer and wine. So kind of our options for production was very limited. And in terms of production, we are kind of a blend between producing beer and producing sake and no one really had the equipment available in their facilities. So it was either me investing a ton of equipment that might not work, uh, starting a brewery, which I have zero experience in, um, or kind of like Frankensteining a model of production that wasn't scalable. Um, but I chose to go with the last, at least to try to just get um, a product to the market. So it took about eight months of, you know, traveling around the U.S., visiting breweries, trying test batches um, until we found a small brewery. And I thought, finally, I've hit a break. But a few months in, that brewery shut down without letting me know. And we were kind of back to square one without any facility or brewery. And at that point, no money. So that was a really, really, you know, hard journey. And by the point where like the brewery shut down, my parents really thought like, you know, you should really go and stop this and like find a job now. Um, but thankfully I, you know, saw an article in the Korean newspaper about these Korean investors looking to fund Korean entrepreneurs. And I reached out to them cold email and they asked me to fly out to LA. And, you know, they believed in me and my vision and understood kind of the potential that Nakali had beyond Korea and, you know, funded my next kind of year of the production process and finding a new facility. So, you know, even now there's huge hiccups like Corona was another hard hit for us. Um, but yeah, I don't think it'll, there'll ever be a year where it's just a smooth sail, you know, life is just filled with unforeseen, you know, hiccups and you just have to pivot. And that's a large part of being an entrepreneur and managing that is your job as well.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your entrepreneurial journey with us, Carol. Um, I know that uh, it's never easy being an entrepreneur because uh, we have one in my family and there's always so much twists and turns and so many obstacles in the way. But uh, I always know from my observance that the reward is huge if you make it. So um, best of luck to you. Um, going to the next question. How has it been like running a small business in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic?
2: Well, a lot of people around me, you know, at the beginning of COVID would send me articles and it was all about how alcohol sales are going up and they thought it was so fortunate and how lucky I am. Um, But what they don't realize is that it's because people were stocking up on Brands of beer in the grocery stores, but it was only like the very large brands that people knew that they would love. So anything that had to do with new products kind of stopped. There was no buying, both on the restaurant side, the retail side, or the consumer side. And um, at the time, we were focused 95% on just restaurants, right? We just wanted to get Maku into restaurants, and all the restaurants shut down. So then Um, the first hit, I think it was either March or April, we took a huge hit. And it was sad because we were just kind of gaining momentum at the time. But eventually, we were able to find two online retailers to partner with. And we already had like a very small but engaged and loyal fan base who would kind of message us online and email us about where to find us. And so we started slowly directing people um, to these online retailers. And I guess because a lot of people were sitting at home you know a lot of people were very engaged in social media and so a lot of people were sharing us and posting about us and so we did kind of gain new followers and new consumers just by having people like friends share about maku on on instagram so thankfully um, we have still been you know steadily growing uh since april that one one bad month and I have been very fortunate, um, but I still think that our momentum and our ability to grow has definitely been very stagnated by by COVID.
1: Um, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, And I, I do think that it's still very impressive that I think you guys were able to expand to over 300 locations. Uh, So that's really awesome. How have you been, I know that you went to, uh, you know, Columbia business school for an MBA, you know, how have you been able to apply your business school learning, you know, to running your real business? You know, what are some of the biggest surprises for you?
2: Um, I don't think that business school, um, you know, a classroom experience really translates to like the real world experience, especially starting a business. Um, but like obviously with financials, I don't have like, like a financial background. I had a major in psychology. So I was more of like a liberal arts person. So I think like financially, like creating a PNL and learning what like gross margins were and like profits and the different types of accounting that was very important. Um, And I think overall, it affects your confidence, your personal confidence. When you do have an MBA, you know, you learn to stand up for yourself and um, speak up louder. And so like when I'm fundraising, you know, I, I'm just a lot more confident saying like, oh, I have an MBA from Columbia. Uh, you could definitely see that they respect you a little bit more and it gives you a little bit of credibility. So, um, and yeah, also just the, the kinds of people that you interface with in business school, everyone's very smart, very well-cultured. So just surrounding you yourself with those types of people makes you more prepared to come across different kinds of individuals when you are like selling yourself and selling the company and selling the product.
0: That's great to hear. Um, and I really agree with you when you said that, you know, the classroom experience hardly translates into the real world experience, uh, because both I and I, we went to journalism school and uh, it's, uh, you know, always quite different in the real world working as real journalists. Um, so I guess um, even though your business uh, sort of took a hit during COVID, but Um, nevertheless, you have built up a very engaged uh, fan base and your business has been running for over three years now. Um, What are your advice to entrepreneurs and, you know, in the early phases and those, you know, who are thinking about starting their own businesses? I would say two things. One,
2: don't use yourself as the customer. Like, a lot of people will have these strong convictions and hypotheses about something, but um, just because you think that you would use this product or service doesn't mean that everyone else will or enough people for you to have a business. So try to do some of the legwork in advance to see if you're really feeling a need or a void, or if you'll really have consumers. Um, like for me, I did a lot of testing and samplings of Makali with both Korean and non-Koreans and restaurants and retailers. Um, second would be that in the beginning, a small business is all about staying alive. And a lot of that is really dealing with cash flow and making sure you never run out of money, whether it be from internal revenue generation or external funding, whether it's debt or equity. So never underestimate like how hard it is to you know secure capital and make sure that if that's not a skill that you have, um, just be very aware that, you know, that is more important than actually running the business, just making sure that you're not running out of money, because you'll shut down and everything else you've built doesn't matter.
1: That's really interesting, uh, and insightful. Um, I have a quick follow up question, you know, as an Asian woman, and also an entrepreneur, like in a successful one, what are some of the challenges that you have faced?
2: I think generally, uh, I do kind of hold true to that stereotype of like a meeker Asian American woman. And I did have a business where uh, before when I was 21, and I was trying to sell an app to restaurants, and I was going door to door. And I very, very much felt you know, my Asian American women coming into play and I was very, very shy and no one could kind of believe that I was a CEO. But I also think I was much younger back then and I didn't have my MBA. So that's kind of where I say where the confidence come, comes back in. Um, this time, because my end customer, at least my initial customers were all Korean restaurants, it actually played to my benefit to being Asian American because I could converse in Korean with them. You know, they thought it was very cute that (laughs) I was younger and, you know, trying to bring something over from Korea. And I also found a lot of support from, you know, Asian American groups, whether it's like on Facebook or um, like Gold House. And there's just a lot of organizations and, um, you know, support groups and communities available that is kind of encouraging like Asian American women entrepreneurs. So, I would say that if anything, it's only been helpful and it's really kind of a mental thing for you just to not be hindered by like, oh, like I'm Asian American and it's going to play against me. So that's been at least my experience.
0: I'm really glad to hear that's your experience because um, I cover um, business as a journalist and I have just heard about so many Um, tales where uh women entrepreneurs i guess especially in tech and silicon valley have um, faced just a lot more obstacles and um you know in terms of uh building their businesses a lot more criticism and scrutiny from uh, venture capital as well um i guess um you know based on what you just said uh what's your vision for maku well where do you see it in three to five years Ideally, I
2: am trying to cement Molcali as a new alcohol category, just how hard cider and hard seltzer did. Um, in terms of like expansion and distribution, our next markets that we're planning for is uh, Canada and Asia. So obviously, like I didn't do enough research and legwork to know where in Canada or Asia that we're planning to to launch. Um, and also depends on like whether we can survive or not the next few years, um, but yeah, my my end goal is to, a cement Maku as a new category of alcohol, and then also international expansion.
0: I
1: think that's you know very important work. Uh, I personally would love to see Maku launch uh, launching in China because you know there's a huge effect of korean wave uh you know like you know people are super enthusiastic about k-pop like korean everything so it would be awesome to see you know maku launching in china uh and that's you know for selfish reason as well like i want my family to try this as well um i have a quick question you know about soju and makgeolli like i i think that everybody in the states or like i mean not everybody but maybe most people who are familiar with like korean cuisine they know about soju um but also like those restaurants like they have like makgeolli as well like why do you think there's a, you know like soju is more known than the makgeolli well first of all
2: technically when you let the rice settle in makgeolli um there's a clear part on top and if you distill that, it becomes soju. So they are they are very related. Um, as I said, like makgeolli is so ancient and has been around for such a long time, and was consumed in the lower class families, and everyone home brewed, and you know all of our grandfathers drank makgeolli from breakfast. And so I think the younger generations to us we always took it as like oh that's you know a drink for my grandfather that's a drink for like the working class and the poor people and because korea has grown so quickly and you know has very high gdp i I think that the younger people have shied away from associating themselves or like depicting themselves as like a makgeolli drinker and so it's just really about the stigma With soju, I don't exactly know why or how it's gotten so popular. Um, That's honestly a mystery to me uh, because I don't think it tastes that great, but it is like the world's number one song spirit. And there are other entrepreneurs like me who are kind of bringing soju back to its roots as well. And, you know, a lot of the things that you see that are commercially available now are not made with the best ingredients and it's not all natural. So just like what I'm doing with makgeolli, I'm trying to rebrand it as like, you know, an all natural drink, something that really is not only for Korean food, um, it's happening with soju as well. But in terms of like how soju got popular while makali didn't, I think it's because there is the stigma with makgeolli that isn't there with soju.
0: And on that note, I think uh, a good place for us to wrap up this episode maybe is for you Carol to share with us uh, how can we purchase Makoli from Maku and where can we find you on social media? How can we get in touch? Yeah,
2: um well you can follow us on Instagram drinkmaku d r i n k m a k k u and in terms of where you can purchase us We do have one store that ships nationwide called craftbeerkings.com, but you can find everything on our website, all of our store locations, Um, and we're in about seven to eight states now, so it's kind of very like dispersed across America. So yeah, I would say just visit our store locator on our website at www.drinkmaku.com.
1: Carol, thank you so much again for, for joining us and sharing your journey. Uh, I feel like I've learned so much today. Uh, so really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Carol, for joining us on this episode. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can find us on Instagram at slurp, And you can also reach us on Twitter at slurp. See you at the next episode.